Hi everyone, I'm Monica Toriello and you're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the consumer and retail industry. Hello and thanks for joining us today. Hopefully you're listening to this episode either before or after a really great meal. People's eating habits have changed pretty dramatically during this pandemic. And as we're all painfully aware, many restaurants shut down their dining rooms for months. People started cooking at home more often and many continue to do so. So this year has been devastating for some restaurants. And yet there are other food service establishments that have seen their business boom since the start of the COVID-19 outbreak. Today, we'll hear from two McKinsey experts who have recently co-authored articles on what restaurants can and should do during these extraordinary times. And although the focus of our conversation will be the restaurant industry in the United States, many of the lessons learned and recommendations will apply to restaurants elsewhere in the world as well. So let's meet our guests. First, we have Stacy Haas, a partner in McKinsey's Detroit office. Stacy is a leader in our consumer practice, and she's helped not just restaurants, but also retailers and consumer goods companies capture growth through portfolio strategy, innovation, and design. Thanks for being here, Stacy. Thank you, Monica. Also with us is John Moran, an associate partner in McKinsey's Boston office. John has worked with a range of companies in the food service value chain, including quick service restaurants, fast casual chains, convenience stores, ingredient providers, and so on. Welcome, John. Thanks, Monica. Excited to be here. So let's start with an easy question. When's the last time you ate at a restaurant? I ate at a restaurant last week. I took all my kids out uh, for dinner because we just had to get out of the house. I haven't eaten in a restaurant for six months since the beginning of COVID, but we've done our fair share of drive-through and, uh, and takeout and delivery for sure. Well, like you, Stacy, I ate at a restaurant last week outdoors. And like you, John, my family has done our fair share of uh, not drive through because we don't have a car, but our fair share of pickup and delivery. But it's been an exceedingly difficult year for many restaurant operators. And you describe some of the challenges in articles that you both co-authored titled How Restaurants Can Thrive in the Next Normal and uh, Eating Outside, Restaurant Dining in the Next Normal, both available on McKinsey.com. And I encourage our listeners to read these articles in their entirety. They include some very interesting and informative charts and graphs. And in those articles, you've made some projections looking ahead to the next two or three years. But before we get into the longer term, can each of you give us an overview of what the U.S. restaurant industry looks like right now? and what the outlook is for the remainder of 2020. I think what we're seeing right now, actually, after the, this terrible drop in, in revenue that occurred um, in March and April of this year, there was a pretty rapid increase in May, June, July, once a lot of um, the restaurants were able to start opening. But now it's flattened off. It's a big challenge, it's a huge challenge for a lot of companies um, particularly a lot of the smaller and independent restaurants um, at the moment. Overall, it's certainly the biggest challenge the restaurant industry has ever faced in the U.S., I think. Um, but the trick is the pain has really not been evenly distributed. So just as you said, Monica, uh, for certain players, like some of the uh, pizza QSRs, they've actually been doing great this whole time. 
our best estimate right now is that the restaurant industry overall is down about 10, 15% or so. Uh, but of course, that's an overall average. There are some doing better and some doing worse. And I think for a lot of the ones doing better, even if they're still down a little bit, that they may be in a sustainable place, right? They may be in a place where they, it makes sense to continue operating. Even if the recovery continues to be a little slow, uh, they're going to be okay versus other places. And again, especially in a few uh, places like independent restaurants and urban areas, et cetera, they're doing meaningfully worse than 10 or 15% down. It's still not sustainable. And that's where, again, if this persists and if there's further surges, that's where it becomes really difficult. Our current projections are that we're going to stay pretty flat or slowly kind of increasing through the rest of this year. I think the biggest concern is we're starting to see some resurgence of cases in a few states and and like this whole thing it's this is also a very state by state and city by city conversation but some resurgence um, in Europe they're starting to pull back on opening hours again and so if we end up having something similar here in the US we could see a little bit of a dip um, but thankfully you know a, a lot of restaurants have been tremendous amount of innovation and a lot of restaurants over the last six months have you know pivoted towards more carry out more delivery and so while there's still many many challenges there's some light for for some locations if if they have to close down dining rooms again say a bit more about the innovation that you've seen from restaurants during this time can each of you share a couple of examples of innovations that perhaps other restaurants can learn from or innovations that you think are worth continuing even post-pandemic? There's um, uh, Lou Malnati's and their Taste of Chicago. So something they were already doing, but where you can um, get delivery of your favorite foods um, from a number of different restaurants. And it's both both fresh food, but also things that that you can can have for cooking at home has been been a great kind of innovation. Gold Belly has kind of a similar a similar approach. Another innovation I found um, it, it's not new, but the rate at which people have moved to um, delivery, to curbside pickout, to pick up, to carry out, and all everything that it takes to make that successful. Right, having an, your app set up. Um, having the ability to take and you know receive the orders and turn them around, new packaging um, to help keep the food warm when it's leaving the restaurant. My local Mexican restaurant took their one of their doors and just cut a window out of the door and put a flap over it so that you could you know just walk up and feel comfortable doing a pickup from there in a safe way without even having to go into the restaurant. I think a lot of the big chains are, are making moves that are uh, for the long term as well, right? They're, they're taking advantage of it. And in some ways, COVID might have pulled forward things that they might have thought about long term anyways. So um, certainly you see some players like Starbucks, they're doing essentially pickup only locations, right? So even though Starbucks has long seen itself as kind of a third place for people to sit down, enjoy their cup of coffee, this has probably accelerated a trend towards just more and more ordering ahead and consuming off-premise as well, right? And so they can have a micro location that is only oriented towards off-premise. You see other players like uh, like a Taco Bell just recently unveiled their restaurant of the future idea with multiple drive-through lanes like we discussed, but actually, again, prioritizing order ahead delivery. So they'd actually have one lane uh, for normal live ordering uh, or in place, and then they have another separate lane for 
uh, fast lane, if you will, for uh, for order ahead uh, pickup. And so actually almost like an airport experience where you have, some, you have a faster and a slower speed of traffic in two different lanes, which is pretty interesting. I think on the, you know, those are large chains. There are a lot of independents that are having to be very scrappy, right? And, and incredibly innovative in terms of what they're trying to do just to, to, to get through this. So we talked to a pizza chain, a sit down pizza chain a few weeks ago that was talking about, gosh, are there ways while we're still uh, knocking the dining room uh, traffic and capacity we want? Are there ways that we can bring food to neighborhoods, to cul-de-sacs? We can host a block party for people that aren't getting to socially engage the way they want to. And in a safe way, we can bring a ton of pizzas and we can invite everyone. We can get everyone in the neighborhood to sign up together. Maybe there's a new, a new dining model that emerges from that. I think, again, it's those types of things that um, can sustain them. It's, it's going to be tough to see how much of that is sustainable for the long term. Some of the things that you guys have talked about involve changes to the physical layout of the restaurant and to the real estate, right? Is there going to be a way for restaurants to survive without touching the real estate? Or do you think that that has to be a big part of their next normal plan? We recently did some research with a number of different restaurants, and I think a very high proportion are planning changes to their store layouts, restaurant layouts for the long term. And so I think we're expecting that because um, even if we got to a post-COVID world where people don't have the level of anxiety about dining in, I think we'll see stickiness of drive-through, stickiness of carry-out, stickiness of delivery, and therefore um, it has implications in terms of the size of the um, in indoor space that you need. Um, and we already saw that with Starbucks as the example where they've announced their kind of pickup only locations, particularly in, in real high traffic urban places where you get a lot of foot traffic anyway. Um, and um, also changes to facilitate delivery, curbside pickup, carry out, where someone doesn't have to walk all the way into the restaurant to pick up or a delivery person doesn't have to walk all the way in to pick up um, to sort of make that that flow because the speed at which a delivery person or a customer can pull in get what they're they're looking for and and continue on their route is going to be really critical i believe for long-term stickiness right to the to that brand and and ongoing ordering yeah I think in a lot of ways, COVID is really accelerating a trend, and you see this in broader retail as well, towards unbundling the restaurant experience, right? So restaurants have historically always been something where you go in and you look at the menu, you place your order, you consume the, you get delivered the food, the food gets prepared, uh, you dine in, there's an experience around that, and you pay all kind of on-site, right, in, in this box. And there's a whole kind of packaging of that experience together. And those things don't all have to happen together. And so increasingly you're seeing, okay, I'm ordering ahead. Maybe I'm paying separately on an app. The food comes to me or I pick it up in a different way. Um, and I think more and more restaurants are seeing that, of course, delivery has already, always been around, but it was a small proportion of the experience. And they still focus largely on that on-premise dining. I think for more and more concepts, they do have to think about themselves as, hey, that's only one of several different modes uh, that this could work. I agree that we'll see an unbundling, or we already are seeing an unbundling of the customer experience. But for me, it makes it even more important for brands to think about how do they own that customer experience and what, what pieces of that customer experience do they have to own 
and how do they want to do that differently? Because as you said, so many pieces are different, right? The way order is different. The way I receive my food is different. The way I'm experiencing the dining is different, right? Because I'm in my car more than I was before, or I'm at home more than I was before. And all of those um, are crucial, crucial, I think, for brands to think about, okay, what do we want that experience to look like now? And how do we create, what pieces do we have to own? And how do we create something that's still really powerful for the customer um, uh, and keeps them attached to our brand? How do we still create an experience that they stay sticky to us? I think probably there have been too many restaurants in the past that, again, define the primary experience as the in-dining room one and the drizzle on the plate and everything about the uh, on-premise presentation as core. And then, okay, we shove it in a plastic thing and put in a paper bag and, and the customer can get it off-premise as well, right? And that's, that's probably not good enough anymore. You need to make, it's going to become such a significant proportion of your business that you need to make sure that uh, the customer still receives it and it's warm if it's supposed to be warm and it hasn't, you know, you have as the proper utensils and it still looks nice and you're still conveying some of that experience uh, along with it. You also probably have to think about your menu too, because I think restaurants are increasingly realizing people don't order sides, apps, desserts as frequently when they're ordering for delivery, right? Or for off premise. Uh, and those are oftentimes some of the biggest money makers you have. So how do you entice a consumer to still add on uh, those other higher margin items when they're ordering off-premise. And, and so thinking about that really carefully is key. So with all of this ordering for off-premises consumption, you know, all these people ordering for delivery, do you think it's realistic for a restaurant or a restaurant chain to survive without partnering with an aggregator or a third-party delivery provider? I think it's possible. Um, it's it really for me comes down to two things. One is the economics, and two is then this element of customer experience. So um, if you have enough scale in delivery, which we see with the pizza chains, right? Domino's um, doesn't work with uh, third-party delivery players. Um, Papa John's is mostly internal, but has you know some. They have stated they have some um, uh, with third-party delivery. Panera has got a lot of internal delivery as well. So I think you've got a number of large players that have scale in their deliveries that have proven they can make the economics work. They're really doing it to uh, hold on to the customer experience end to end. Right, and a belief that that long term is really crucial. It comes to those two things, right? You know, do you have enough scale, and can you think about scale in in pockets, right? Of like two miles from my restaurant, five miles from my restaurant. Where can I get scale? Different time periods of time during the day, right? Can I have enough scale at peak times to be able to to do it myself? Maybe not at all times of the day. So. I think it's also, for me, Monica, not a one-size-fits-all answer of am I, you know, 100% with um, third-party players, am I 100% by myself, or is there something in the middle? But there's no doubt, I mean, the third-party delivery players, customers are going there. And we are firm believers that you should be where the customer wants to be. But I think the important thing for brands to think about is what's the role that they want the aggregators to play in their end-to-end -end customer experience. And if they are partnering, 
with aggregators? How do they still maintain or drive the customer experience that they want? And even if they partner with aggregators, restaurants can still control some of the digital customer experience, right? I mean, one of the things that you recommend in your articles is to redefine and deepen customer relationships through direct digital communication, loyalty programs, and personalization. Can you give examples of how restaurants are doing that successfully? I think we've seen some restaurants um, stand up what we might call a digital war room or a personalization war room where they are actively um, running a number of different communication type tests with their customers to help understand what are the ways of engaging with their customers that actually um, energize the customer base, bring them in the most frequently, help make sure they're really aware of what they're offering, how the menu may have changed, different ways they have of getting their, um, accessing their food they may not have been aware of before, and doing just a lot of different tests on a very rapid basis. Um, and that is, is, for many, driving tremendous results in terms of customer engagement and also uh, getting customers to try out different, different channels for, for acquiring food. I think that's been one of the big ones we've seen yeah, I mean, I think just having a loyalty program that's robust has been one of those strategies that maybe was on the back burner pre-COVID and has just absolutely paid off in spades. I, I know we've uh, we looked, for example, at Outback Steakhouse, so Bloomin' Brands, uh, which actually was was way ahead of many of its competitors in terms of they had a, a relatively rewarding program, so they gave meaningful discounts on uh, entrees, et cetera, and they actually signed up quite a few customers to that. They had, uh, I think, about 10 million customers at the outset of, of COVID. And you could have had a lot of debates. There are probably analysts looking at that saying, gosh, are, are we giving away too much? You know, geez, we're giving away a lot of discounted entrees, blah, blah. And that has been a huge lifeline for them as COVID is onset because the consumer is entirely up for grabs. All their dining habits have been disrupted. They're looking at new, not just cuisines, new methods of ordering, et cetera. And so having you know, 10 million members that you can reach out to on a personalized basis and say, hey, we're open, here are new hours, we're now doing curbside, come back in, do this, it's gold. Uh, investing in that is huge. People want to help restaurants too. So the more you can reach out to customers on a personalized basis and say, hey, support your local restaurant. A lot of uh, smaller restaurants have been very innovative about, hey, we'll help uh, deliver food to first responders or into a hospital or, or something else like that. There's a great Korean restaurant we order from sometimes. And again, right in the depths of COVID when cases were really surging and there was a lot of concern about flattening the curve and you know, uh, our hospital is going to be overwhelmed, ventilators, et cetera. Uh, they, they said, hey, uh, we're running promotions where we encourage you to help order food for, again, for hospital workers, for doctors, for nurses, for first responders, um, and support your favorite local restaurant that's had to be shut down in the meantime, right? And again, it's that scrappy kind of entrepreneurial uh, nature that Stacey was talking about that we've seen so many independent restaurateurs really exhibit uh, to do good, to help themselves, and to capitalize on, on the goodwill that consumers feel. Because I do think there is a little bit of a sense in COVID of we're all in this together. Right. Let's talk about outdoor dining, which has been a lifeline for many restaurants in the cities where you live and where I live, right? But in all three of those cities, in just a few weeks, it's going to get cold. What's your message to restaurant operators as they head into the fall and winter? If you haven't already, 
you have to be preparing for delivery, carry out, curbside pickup, and being prepared for that, I think is, is going to be the ongoing lifeline until we can increase capacity of dining in. And also just because we can, we can see from the research we've done um, that customers have a lot of anxiety about dining in. We could open the, 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 the doors, right? Open the doors really wide and not have the level of dining in that, that a restaurant would need to really survive. And so I think it will be dependent on delivery, carry out, curbside pickup. Unfortunately, a lot of restaurants have been in the mindset, say around May, June of, okay, it's going to be COVID through the summer, uh, but hopefully by the fall or going to the winter, this will have subsided, right? And we can welcome people back in and the consumer will accept that, et cetera. And it's increasingly clear that COVID is not over and the consumer is still anxious. As some of our research point, uh, 80% of consumers still feel medium to high anxiety around dining on premise within a, a, the dining hall of a restaurant. A lot of restaurants, I think, set up, you know, ad hoc curbside quickly for, you know, for the summer when COVID hit. And okay, well, hopefully this will this will be a six month solution. But unfortunately, I think it has to those types of solutions have to last you a lot longer than that. We're, we're, uh, we're not out of the woods yet, unfortunately. So restaurants will need to continue to be, as you've said, entrepreneurial and scrappy and innovative. And Stacy, you've been writing quite a bit about innovation, specifically in the consumer packaged goods space. Do you think there's anything that restaurants can learn from the process that CPG companies go through to innovate? I actually think Monica can go the other way. Um, what, I, what I've seen, one of the things we spend a lot of time with consumer goods companies on is how to be more agile, to ide- ideate quickly, but then get out and test and learn from um, from consumers, and that's you know through the development process, but also you know putting it actually into market, seeing what kind of feedback you get, and revising. And actually, I think a lot of restaurants have have done this fantastically well. I think one of the things we've heard is you know before where you would have a really lengthy development process, you might debate for a long time, you might do a ton of consumer research to figure out whether they're going to like it or they're not. Now, restaurants have had to move. They've had to do things differently. And that sense of risk has gone in a different direction, right? Of the, the risk of not doing something different has been greater than the risk of trying something that isn't successful or that you need to adjust. And so the thing I've been thinking a lot about is how do we actually keep that agile approach, that mindset of, of trying things when we get back into a world where that balance of risk may feel different again. Customers have been actually quite adaptable um, in this time period, and so I really want to keep that agile approach to innovation um, even post this time period. As you both said, it looks like they're going to have to be agile for a while longer. The statistics from the National Restaurant Association have been very sobering. You know, more than 100,000 restaurants closed since March, $185 billion in losses so far, massive layoffs across the industry. Amid all of this, are there any data points or maybe anecdata, just like anecdotes, that you think paint a more positive and hopeful picture of the industry and its future? I think to me the most uh positive data point is that the consumer still wants to dine out. There's a world you could have foreseen where you say, gosh, 
COVID, the economic fallout and uncertainty that so many consumers are receiving, you know, it's all going to shift towards people dining at home and shopping at grocery and, and cooking for themselves. But people want to dine out, Americans more than almost anyone else in the world. Uh, and so, I mean, gosh, I was driving on the highway the other day and it's like the drive through lane at Wendy's is like literally backing out onto the highway. You know, it's, it's almost dangerous. It's like 10 cars deep. Uh, people want to dine out and they're always going to want to. And even if the independent restaurant segment is hard hit, I have no doubt that in the future, longer term, people are going to go, they're, they're going to come back, right? It's, these are not lost behaviors. This is not a lost uh, generation here. So it's extremely difficult at the moment, but the consumer is, the consumer is going to be there if we can accommodate them. I'm constantly reading stories about the owners of a lot of these independent restaurants and the lengths that they have gone to to serve their customers, to keep as many workers employed, the flexibility they've shown, the resilience they have. I mean, that's part of what gives me a lot of hope um, that, that you know, they'll, they'll survive and, and that they're doing everything that they can to, to both survive, but also really help the whole ecosystem to eventually thrive again. I was thinking about um, a lot of the restaurants in New York. The restaurant industry in the city has been very hard hit. But then you see these pictures of all the outdoor dining that got set up, you know, into the sidewalks, into the streets, into parking lots, into parks, sort of anywhere and everywhere. But the joy, I think, that comes for people being able to be outside and experience the tremendous, you know, food culture that exists in that city. And I think the same has been true in many other cities um, because food is a cultural experience, right? It, it is so core to the way that we interact with others, right, and, and come together. Those have been my favorite stories of work and ingenuity um, an effort um, from the restaurants has been able to be able to sustain for people during, you know, a lot of challenging times. Totally agree. I was walking around yesterday and I live in Manhattan and there are streets where it's like almost a party atmosphere, like tons of people eating outside. And it's amazing how quickly you get used to just sitting like six inches away from passing cars. You know, you're like just sitting on the street and literally if you just stick your arm out a little bit, you touch a passing car. But you just kind of trust the drivers won't ram into your table and you just you eat because I think you're right. People do want to eat out. People want to patronize the restaurants. So my last question, if a restaurant operator comes to you and says, you know, I want my business to make it through this and I am overwhelmed and worried and anxious, but I want to make it work. What do I need to do? What do you tell that restaurant operator? If restaurants are going to make it, a restaurant's going to make it work in the short, medium, even potentially long term, it's going to be about reassessing the channels for where you meet the customer. Um, and making sure that you can engage with them on the way that they're comfortable with, right? So whether it's in your restaurant, it's delivery, it's carryout, it's curbside pickup, that figuring out that flexible model that allows you to meet the customer where they're at, but with economics that can work for you, I think is the most crucial thing right now.
the way out is going to be through the consumer, right? And it's going to be, um, hey, the consumer is in a very different place. We're having to operate with very different models. But if you keep the consumer, the guest, front and foremost in your mind, uh, even as they may not be able to dine in the restaurant, even if they may have significant anxiety, uh, and you think about what their experience is going to be like, uh, what they want to eat, and what they're willing to pay for it, and you continue to optimize around that, I think that that's going to that's gonna be the way out of the woods. Well, hopefully we'll do a follow-up to this podcast next year, and the industry will be in a much different, much better place than it is today. Thank you, Stacy and John, for spending time with us. To our listeners, thanks for sticking around. Until next time, this is Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com soon. To suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email updates on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.